turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, this morning we will be looking at verses 20 through 26 as we continue our journey through the gospel of Luke. Today's sermon is blessings and woes, and our key words for our worshipers and training are blessed, woe, and kingdom. Now there are very few things in this world that will garner an overwhelming consensus on one side of any particular issue. But I think if I presented the following scenario in an international survey, that we could fairly accurately determine across the board what the results would be. And here it is. Would you rather be rich, well-fed, successful and receive great recognition, or be poor, hungry, grieving, and excluded. Now in the end, I think if we tallied up all of the votes, we'd have two groups of people. Those who would say they'd like to be rich, well-fed, successful, and recognized, and those who are lying. Instinctively, These are the desires of the heart of every human being. But this is the very thing that in today's text, Jesus is going to present. And he's going to show something that looks very different from our culture, very different from our instinctive desires, very different from the overwhelming human understanding of what's important and what's valuable. Now at this point in the Gospel of Luke, we've, we've become uh, acquainted with this theme that will continue throughout the Gospel uh, in the teaching of Jesus. On many occasions from this point forward, Jesus is going to be uh, making statements about the kingdom of God. What is it? What can it be compared to? How does it operate? What are its values? How do we inherit it? We're going to hear this time and again, the kingdom of God. And today we will see Jesus drawing a stark contrast between the only two kingdoms that truly exist. The kingdom of the world, which we will call this morning the old kingdom, and the kingdom of God, or the new kingdom. And now, there are many kingdoms across the world. Together, though combined, they all only really constitute one single kingdom because its values and its purposes are united. And it stands in stark opposition to the kingdom of God that Jesus is beginning to unfold for us. So let's read. We'll begin in verse 17 and read through verse 26. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, if you remember from last week, Jesus has descended from the mountain on which he was praying all night long. He calls unto himself his twelve apostles. He commissions them and ordains them to service. Now Luke records in verse 17 that Jesus stood on a level place. He's surrounded by people who have come to hear him from various regions. He begins to teach, heal the sick, and to cast out demons. Now beginning with verse 17, all the way through the end of chapter 6, verse 49, has historically been referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. There's a lot of scholarly debate as to whether or not this is the same uh, sermon or the same instance as uh, is recorded in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. But I think it's quite simple. Geographical landmarks themselves seem, in my mind, to be enough to prove otherwise. Luke is clear that Jesus was on a level place. Matthew states that Jesus was on a mountain. And it's very likely that Jesus taught the same things often, same parables, same illustrations, same lessons as he was traveling around, constantly surrounded by different people. It's very likely he was often uh, sharing the same sorts of things and teaching in the same way. Luke and Matthew, in my opinion, have recorded two different sermons of the same essential substance. Preachers do that regularly. I think Jesus did the same. Now, two more initial observations before we get into the meat of the text. First, notice in verse 20 who Jesus' audience is. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples. It's all of these people surrounding him who have been following him, listening to him, watching him, learning from him. His primary audience is these people, these disciples. That's not to say, as we looked at last week, that all of them were faithful followers who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was there to redeem them, but they were following Jesus. And he was teaching them, they were listening to him, and so they were referred to as disciples. Secondly, notice what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying... Do these things that I'm outlining for you and don't do these other things. Now, Jesus certainly does give us imperatives or commands throughout the Gospels. And we're going to look at one of those next week. But this is not one of them. These blessings and woes that Jesus pronounces are not imperatives. They're not commands. They're statements of fact. There's a big difference He's beginning to darken what has so far been sort of a faint line 
that exists between those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are in the kingdom of the world. In other words, he's explaining to the people who are following him what it is to be a true disciple. He's beginning to remove the false notion of what true commitment to the kingdom of God really looks like. I must admit, the next several chapters that we will be looking at have a tendency to make us squirm a little bit. Make us a little bit uncomfortable when we really get into what Jesus is saying and how his word, as it's laid upon our own lives, brings us to a place of questioning, of asking a lot of questions of our own hearts. This is a stretch of chapters in the Gospel of Luke that I hope all of us who are believers will be especially praying fervently for those that God has brought into our midst who will hear these sermons, that he would use his word to save sinners, to prove to some that they're not Christians as they've assumed, and to awaken others who are Christians who have begun to drift into a spiritual slumber. Now, as we look at the blessings and woes, remember through this that Jesus is differentiating between two different kingdoms. And every kingdom, good or evil, has at least three things in common. First is each kingdom has a specific set of values. Those things which it values and based upon those values, decisions and decrees are made. And we will consider the values of each of the two kingdoms this morning. Secondly, in order to implement those values, there must be a source of power. So we need to ask of each of these kingdoms, where is the power derived? And third, as we seek to instill in all of our children, and sadly as many adults never really come to realize, what we value and how we work those values out has consequences. So each kingdom will have certain results based upon the values and the power upon which these values are worked out. So first, let's look at the values of the kingdoms. The value of each kingdom, according to Jesus, are given in the blessings and the woes. Consider first the values of the old kingdom. There's four of them. Power, comfort, success, and recognition. We see them in verses 24 through 26. First, power. In the old kingdom, riches equal power. The more you have, the more power you wield. That seems to be a staple in our culture. And even more so, it's true in other nations of the world. The havers rule over the have-nots. Those who have, those who have gained, those who have the greatest amount of wealth rule over those who have nothing. Comfort. Jesus explains it as those who are well-fed. This refers more broadly to those who have all that they could possibly want, a full stomach, a full house, a full garage, even a full storage set that they rent. You name it, comfort is there. Success. Now Jesus says, woe to you who laugh. He's not talking about general laughter or being jovial and having a good time. He's referring to gloating. 
It's not an admonition against laughter. It's a boasting in victory. Like if you've won a game or you've gotten a promotion over and above someone else and you gloat about it. Woe to you who gloat, we could say. And fourthly, recognition is the value of the old kingdom. Being popular among the people. Always being well spoken of. Never ruffling anyone's feathers or making others uncomfortable. Being a yes man, a people pleaser. Making sure that everything you say is correct in the eyes of man, even if it's not true. These are very clearly the values of the old kingdom. Notice something that they all have in common as well. These are the values of the kingdom of right now. They're all temporary. They don't last. Power will come and go. Comfort will come and go. Success is only for a while. Recognition as soon as you do something that the the populace doesn't enjoy or like. You no longer share the recognition you once had. But we have to admit, as I brought up in the very beginning, this is our natural inclination in life toward these things. This is how we are instinctively oriented and wired as fallen individuals. The old kingdom that is driven by results that happen right here and right now. I value X because X will get me to Y as quickly as possible. But it's all temporary. Notice the constant refrain of verses 24 through 26. You have power now. You have comfort now. Success now. Recognition now. You have all of these things right here. You have them right now. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? You don't have to look at very many ads in our culture to see that it's all about right now. It's not only the natural inclination of our hearts, It's elevated by the culture of instant gratification. So the old kingdom values are those things that bring about this instant gratification. For some, it may be physical beauty. You have it now. It's not going to last. Political power, perhaps. That can be gone in four to six years. Material possessions. What happens with those when you die? This is the old kingdom, the kingdom of now. It is, and Jesus is laying out, being replaced by the new kingdom. The new kingdom is not the right now kingdom. It's the eternal kingdom. It's a new society with different values altogether. It is the kingdom of God The values of the new society are just the opposite of the old. And I hope you saw that as we read. They truly are weakness and sacrifice and grace and exclusion. Why in the world would anyone value these things? How can Jesus possibly say that these things are good things? You know, it's passages like this that really drive secular humanists crazy. Why would any rational human being want these things? It must just be a way for people to rationalize and feel good about their difficult circumstances so they convince themselves that these are good things. There's something else worth waiting for. 
Because honestly, otherwise it just doesn't make sense. And so we realize to those who are in the dark, the values of a new society are unbelievably foolish. But Christians understand, and Jesus is identifying, that a true disciple of Jesus Christ has a complete reversal of values. Everything that the old kingdom promotes and values gets turned on its head completely. And what the world sees as a blessing is really a woe. And what the world sees as a woe is really a blessing. And remember, these are objective realities in the lives of Christians within the new kingdom. Jesus is not saying, do these things and you will be blessed. Because quite honestly, we can't in and of ourselves. He is saying, if you are a member of the new kingdom, then this is your state of being. This is how you are. This is how you think. This is how you function. These are your values. These are the results of a regenerate heart. So let's look at each of them. Weakness. Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. And we're not talking here about a physical weakness. We're not talking about laying down and being walked all over by others. That's not the kind of weakness we're talking about. But rather a recognition that in and of ourselves, we are as poor as poor can be. We have no power of our own. Everything that we have, material, spiritual, Moral, everything that we have comes from God and Him alone, and we are completely dependent upon Him. It's the difference between self-righteousness and depending upon the righteousness of another. A huge contrast. It is, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, to be poor in spirit. It's saying, I have nothing of value, and God owes me nothing at all. And the only alternative to being poor in spirit is to be middle class in spirit. I worked hard, now give me what I deserve. Give me what is owed to me for my efforts. It's a system of works. It's a righteousness of works. Sacrifice. Blessed are you who are hungry now. The values of the new kingdom are values that drive us to live in a way that seems very reckless to the world. Not irresponsible, but reckless. For example, our money. Why in the world would we ever give a significant portion of our personal income to the church every single week? Why would we spend money to support people who have decided on their own to leave their culture here in the United States where they could live comfortable lives with good-paying jobs to go live in a third-world nation somewhere else. We see it in our relationships. All of the imperatives, all of the commands in the Bible that deal with how we relate to other people speak to this. Reckless living for the good Not of ourselves, but of others. That's certainly not the American way, is it? 
Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 is absolute foolishness in the old kingdom. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. But you don't know what he did to me. That's the cry of the world. But you see, the new kingdom, the new kingdom values a life that is lived for the benefit of others, which means we are going to be mistreated, which means we're going to be taken advantage of time and time again, but we continue to open ourselves up to being hurt and being rejected in our relationships. Because in Christ, we find something worth pursuing in our relationships with one another. The new kingdom is a kingdom that sets aside comfort and embraces sacrifice for the benefit of others, for the benefit of our neighbor. Another of these values is grief. Blessed are you who weep now. And we don't have to live long in this life to recognize that grief is constantly knocking at the door. With every new supposed success seems to come another set of trials, another reason to weep. But Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that we as Christians, those who live in the new society, we don't grieve as others do. Why? Why do those in the old kingdom grieve the way that they do? Because, Jesus points out, they have no hope. Real, satisfying, lasting laughter. True, deep, unending joy that awaits us. And so we weep now. But it's a different kind of grief altogether. It's a grief that is filled with hope. It is, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. A few years ago, I read a book called Columbine. It was a detailed account of the events that unfolded at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado in 1999. It's a fairly lengthy book. There's a small section that really stands out. It really grabs the attention of anyone who's paying uh, close a notice. The writer is explaining a scene where, where buses of students were being brought to a nearby location to meet up with their parents after everything had happened. And as bus after bus after bus came and dropped off more students, the parents waited and they held their breath and they watched the doors as the kids came off the bus. Of course, there were some parents who watched and waited, and their sons and daughters never arrived. And eventually, they were told that the last bus had come, and all the students who would be returning home had been released. The writer of the book explains this. Most of the evangelicals reacted differently than the other parents. The press had been cleared from the area, but Lynn Duff was assisting the families as a Red Cross volunteer. As a very liberal Jew from San Francisco, Lynn was taken aback by what she saw. Quote, The way that those families reacted was markedly different, she said. 
It was like 180 degrees from where everybody else was. They were singing. They were praying. They were comforting other parents. They were thinking a lot about the other parents, the other families, and responding to a lot of other people's needs. They were definitely in pain, and you could see the pain in their eyes, but they were very confident of where their children were. They were at peace with it. It was like they were a living example of their faith. It's amazing. And you hear it in her words. That's reckless. Why do you care so much about other people? You should be grieving your own loss. You shouldn't be concerned with other people. You should be concerned with yourselves right now. But it's a great example of grieving in a way that is far different and far removed from the kingdom of old. It is being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, because our hope and our joy rest far beyond this world. Lastly, Jesus points to exclusion as one of the values of the new kingdom. Blessed are you when people hate, exclude, revile, and spurn your name as evil because of Jesus. The reality of a new kingdom life is that it is an indictment on those who live in the old kingdom. Every person lives as a member of one kingdom or the other. So when we are consistently living as a people who are not controlled by the values of the old, we will be hated, we will be excluded, we will be reviled, and we will be spurned because we rub against their consciences like sandpaper, reminding them of the law of God that is written on their conscience of which they have suppressed in unrighteousness. So their options are one of two, either to inquire about the hope that is within us and repent of their sin and embrace the gospel or eventually to lash out against it and resort to persecution. Now realize that Jesus is very specific in his words here. The persecution that he is describing is on account of the Son of Man. In other words, he's not talking about people hating you and excluding you because you're an obnoxious and unbearable person. That's something altogether different. We're talking about real persecution because of Jesus. The old kingdom values cannot align with the new. So whenever we live and speak in a way that rocks the members of the old kingdom back on their heels, they find reason to strike. And Jesus says when you're struck, you are blessed because it's evidence that you are living as a citizen of the kingdom of God. In a morally bankrupt kingdom, those who stand up and say, the Lord says, the Lord command, the Lord expects. This is an enemy that should be silenced. The citizens of the old kingdom assume that they are their own kings. And to tell them that they are to submit to the authority of another is intolerable. Back in March of this year, the very exclusion that Jesus identifies was on display on CNN and several other news stations in the days to follow. The reporter, uh, Pierce Morgan, was interviewing Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron's an actor. He's recently written, produced his own film 
He was being asked about his movie. And since Kirk Cameron is a very outspoken and a solid Christian, the conversation quickly turned to his beliefs regarding the sanctity of marriage. Here's a small piece of that interview. Morgan, what is your view of gay marriage? I'm just saying, these issues are interesting to me about what you would tell your kids, who you're trying to protect, for example. Would you tell them that gay marriage is a sin? Cameron, I would tell my children as I tell them what I believe myself. And dealing with these social issues, whether it's abortion or gay marriage. Morgan, what do you believe? Cameron, I believe that marriage was defined by God a long time ago. Marriage is almost as old as dirt. And it was defined in the garden between Adam and Eve, one man, one woman for life, till death do you part. So I would never attempt to try to redefine marriage. I don't think anyone else should either. So do I support the idea of gay marriage? No, I don't. Do you think homosexuality is a sin? I think that it's, it's unnatural. I think that it's, it's detrimental and ultimately destructive to so many of the foundations of civilization. Well, what do you do if one of your six kids says, Dad, bad news, I'm gay? Well, I'd sit down and have a heart-to-heart with them just like you would do with your kids. Well, if my son said that, I'd say that, that's great, son, as long as you're happy. What would you say? Well, I wouldn't say, that's great, son, as long as you're happy. I'm going to say, you know, there's all sorts of issues that we need to wrestle through in our lives. Just because you feel one way doesn't mean you should act on everything that we feel. And in my opinion... Kirk Cameron handled the question brilliantly because he described homosexuality in the very same way that the Apostle Paul does in the book of Romans. And later he goes on to explain that everyone is born in sin, that he is no greater in his sin than any homosexual or anyone else. We're all fallen, we're all broken human beings, and we all need Jesus. That was his message. What was the response? Well, for at least a week following, talk show hosts took to the air to let the world know that Kirk Cameron is hateful, bigoted, and intolerant and unloving. The common refrain was that Kirk hates a specific group of people. And even some suggested that he wasn't being very Christ-like. Rosie O'Donnell, in addressing him on her talk show, said, It's so not pious. It's very unchristlike, Kirk. Really, if you want to follow the Jesus model, man, don't go shaming people like that. So when a man upholds the biblical standard, he is accused of hatred, he's accused of shaming people. Why? Because he was saying, God calls what you are doing sinful. Thus saith the Lord. You see, to believe that God has authority over the lives of the very people he created is antithetical to the old kingdom values. And the result will be exclusion. The reality is that as citizens of the new kingdom, we will be excluded. We will be hated. The Bible doesn't hold back in telling us that. R. Kent Hughes writes, If we are acceptable and popular with people who live according to the spirit of the present evil age, 
we may in fact belong to that evil age and thus share in its judgments. And when it comes to exclusion, Jesus says, rejoice in that day when it comes. Why? Well, we're not masochists. and We shouldn't be seeking or trying to be persecuted. But the Bible is very matter-of-fact on many different occasions. If you follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. And the proper response is what? Rejoice! Why? Because of the day that is yet to come. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Because we're not in the kingdom of now, we patiently await our reward, which is in heaven. In Acts chapter 5, we see this very thing with the apostles. When the Sanhedrin had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's strange. But it's at the heart of every true believer. And it's a reversal of values that happens in the new kingdom. Not living by the values of the world, but content with the circumstances Content with the providence of God because He has caused the circumstances for our greater good and for His greater glory. Now when Jesus uses the language of blessed, He's saying deeply satisfied. So if we're not under the old kingdom, we prize this reversal of values and we understand that our blessedness is based upon our standing in heaven before the great creator of the universe. Not because of what we've done, not because of what we will do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. You see, when your kingdom perspective is turned upside down, You can live and work with integrity and satisfaction no matter what the circumstances are. So take, for example, two men. They have the very same job. One is a member of the old kingdom, and one a member of the new. They have to give their boss a specific answer. And if they answer truthfully, they will lose their job. If they lie and get away with it, they will continue in their job and get a promotion. Tempting. But a man who lives according to the values of the new kingdom isn't going to lie. He's going to walk in integrity. Because at the end of the day, circumstances don't dictate how he responds. He has a conscience that is informed by the truth, the law of God. He loves and wants to uphold the law of God. And as a result of what Christ has done for him, he seeks to thankfully please God by doing what God commands. And the trade-off, you see, is when we're not controlled by the values of the world, we experience our greatest communion with God. And so if you're running from the values of the new kingdom, if you're always seeking to avoid what inevitably comes when we're citizens of heaven, you're still controlled. 
But when you're able to live in a way that looks at circumstances and responds according to what God has commanded, living recklessly for the benefit of others, we will find ourselves in the greatest communion with God. And we're not afraid of the results because our hope isn't found in the now. Our hope is found in heaven. Now, very quickly, let's look at the power of each kingdom. Every kingdom derives its power from somewhere. Obviously, the old kingdom derives its power from a false sense of self-ability. It's self-righteousness. It's self-dependence. It's a mirage. But it's the only thing that exists outside of depending on God. Even those who assume that God is someone or something other than what he is are ultimately depending on self-sufficiency because, as Paul tells the Corinthians, idols have no power. They are powerless and unable to provide anything at all. They are dead and useless. But verse 19 speaks to the source of the power for the new kingdom. And we looked at it briefly last week. It's evidenced that the power of the new kingdom is Jesus. Not Jesus as our example, but Jesus as the creator of life, the giver of life, the redeemer, the savior, the source of righteousness that we absolutely need if we are ever going to be anything of ultimate value and worth for the kingdom of God. If we were to stand before God and be counted as blameless. All of these blessings are true because of what Jesus has done. Jesus descending from the mountain to stand on the plain and call his apostles and establish the foundation of the church is the writing on the wall. The old kingdom is coming to an end. And by healing and casting out demons, raising the dead to life and ultimately redeeming the lost, Jesus is establishing his new kingdom. So what is the result, finally? Those who are poor are those who aren't having some illusion of self-sufficiency. A people who are disadvantaged for the advantage of others aren't constantly seeking to be fed. And they don't have a false sense of security and comfort in their current circumstances. When citizens of the new kingdom grieve, they find their true joy outside of themselves and their surroundings. When we're persecuted for the sake of Christ, we rejoice that we were counted worthy to suffer reproach for the sake of Christ. A Christian is so strong in Christ that we won't be afraid to be made weak. We find our joy in the finished work of Jesus and the hope of our eternal inheritance, so we're not scared of weeping. As Christians, we understand what God has accomplished on our behalf in Jesus Christ, so much so that we are gladly and thankfully moved to sacrifice for the benefit of others. And Christians don't fear persecution, but we rejoice in it because suffering reproach for the name of Jesus is a sure sign that the influence of the new kingdom is made evident in our lives. 
we know that Jesus has made us who and what we are in him. And his kingdom so invades our lives in every way that the values of the old kingdom grow distasteful to us. And our desires and our longings for more of God and his kingdom grow stronger. A Christian recognizes that everything is a matter of grace. We are what we are by the grace of God. So we all have to ask ourselves, Am I living a life that is controlled by what the world says or am I living a life that is marked by the values of the new kingdom? And I can only say I'm living a life in the new kingdom if Christ has come into my place and given up his place for me that I might stand in his. And when this happens, we can be deeply satisfied in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in because ours is the kingdom of God. And we will be satisfied. And we shall laugh because our reward is great in heaven. One of the great joys that is ours now as Christians, as citizens of the new kingdom, is participating with Christ and his people in the supper that was instituted by him that we might enjoy and share in communion with Him. He has graciously given us His body, that we might eat and never hunger again. He has mercifully shed His blood, that we might drink and never thirst again. And as we eat bread and drink wine, We remember the great work of redemption in Christ Jesus to secure our standing as citizens of the new kingdom with new hearts, with new affections, and new ways of life because he has made us to be new creations. And so we have the great joy this morning of joining and participating with Jesus and his people in the Lord's Supper. This is the meal of the new kingdom. The Lord's Supper was instituted by the Lord on the same night in which he was betrayed. It's to be observed in his churches to the world's end for perpetual remembrance of him and to show forth the sacrifice of himself in his death. It was also instituted to confirm Christians in the belief that all the benefits stemming from Christ's sacrifice belong to us. Furthermore, it's meant to promote our spiritual nourishment and our growth in Christ as to strengthen the ties that bind us to all the duties we owe to God. The Lord's Supper is also a bond and a pledge of fellowship which believers have with Christ and with one another. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the church. And so the proper recipients are only those who are part of the church. If you have repented of your sins, if you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of your soul, then you're welcomed, you're invited, you're encouraged to partake of the bread and wine. It is the food and drink of the kingdom of God. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're currently in open rebellion against God and unrepentant sin, or if you're under the discipline 
of another local church with whom you have not yet reconciled, then you should not partake of this meal. If this is you, please pass the plate along as it comes by. And as a reminder, to partake of the meal without being reconciled to God and his people is, in the words of the Apostle Paul, to eat and drink judgment on yourself. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven and 28, the Apostle Paul urges the church to examine themselves before and when they take communion. The instruction was in the context of love and unity that each Christian has for each other within the church. Brothers and sisters, we are brothers and sisters. That's not just what we call each other. We are adopted sons and daughters of God if we are Christians. And God has made us to be brothers and sisters. We must love one another. We must dwell in unity together. So let's take a brief moment for silent preparation and then we will pray together and eat and drink together as citizens of the new kingdom of God.